You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. That music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis Day. Well, it's sunny now, but you know, five minutes ago, Don, it was foggy here. It is foggy from our spacious recording studios in Dixon, California. As I look out the window, the sun has been peeking out. Uh, we're recording this program Wednesday, December 1, 2021. And it's been foggy each morning until about 9 or 10 o'clock and then burning off late morning and then sunny in the afternoon. We have been running several degrees above average for this time of year. Uh, Southern California, well above average for this time of year. High today, for example, well, it's 52 degrees as we speak. It's going up to a high today of 67. Well, is that what is the average of this on December 1 would be 59. So we're seven or eight degrees above average. And uh, that's been the case for several days. In fact, just a brief detour here. I've been a little concerned about the chilling hours for fruit trees. Now it's early in the season, but we've been warm. We've been getting up into the 60s and our night temperatures have been in the 40s. And uh, the chilling hours that accumulate for fruit trees, the deciduous fruit trees are, are to be between about 32 and 45 degrees, and we've barely been getting below 45 degrees at night. We'll come back to this topic in a moment. Uh, mostly clear during the daytime, patchy fog in the morning, night temperatures for the next five or six days, not getting below about 41, 42 degrees, 40 degrees on Saturday night, daytime highs, 66, 64, 63, so a few degrees above average. Change in the weather pattern on Monday with a slight chance of rain. This is a weak storm, but this high pressure ridge has been dominating our weather for the last couple of weeks. We'll break down, shift out of the way, a storm's gonna come through, slight chance of rain Monday, Monday night, most of the rainfall to the north of us, but much needed. And then uh, we'll be back to the high pressure ridge building on Tuesday. So for the extended forecast, it looks like we'll be back into somewhat above average temperatures mid part of next week. So it looks like basically foggy mornings, sunny afternoons, great planting weather, by the way, the soil in our area is in absolutely perfect planting condition. If you're in the Davis area, you might enjoy my recent column in the Davis Enterprise, which talked about the different things we can do anywhere outside of the area. You can go to their website, and I believe you have at least a couple of articles that you can read free of charge, and so you can check that out. And I had someone repost it in uh, Central Florida to their group, which I thought was interesting because his comment was, I think this mostly applies to us too. And I believe he's correct because I looked at the USDA zone and where he is there in Central Florida, same zone as us. And so with, I can't speak to their soil moisture conditions, but happy to be able to provide at least appropriate temperature and climate data between two very far flung parts of USDA zone nine. We often talk about these climate zones and I kind of joke about the fact that 
Zone 9, which is what we're in, USDA zone, includes you know, Crescent City, uh, Davis, <laughs> California, Central Florida, one city in Texas, I think I use Brownsville, Texas, and parts of, but not all of, New Orleans. And I joke, you know, what do those all have in common? Well, interestingly, there are a couple of times of year where we do have some things in common. It's probably bulb planting season in all those parts of Zone 9 right now. We do want to mention it's that time of year in the fall when we ask you, please, if you really enjoy this program and the other programming here at KDRT, go ahead and head over to kdrt.org. Click on the support button where you will find a variety of ways you can give us money, your credit card, how to write a check and mail it to us. You can give us your car. You know, we'll take all kinds of things. Anyway, kdrt.org, click on, this, on the support button. If you like the idea of community radio, public radio, well, we rely on contributions from folks like you to fund our operating costs. So if you like what you hear, if you like the idea of public radio, just head over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. We have a lot of topics here. John, you know, we had so much mail this week. It was wonderful. Why don't you tell folks how they can write to us? That's easy. Davisgardenshow at gmail.com. Let's go through a couple of the questions and, and comments that we received. Okay, well, uh, in an earlier show, we were talking about indoor plants, and we mentioned that we had a listener who is uh, in Montreal and was growing fruit trees and citrus and all sorts of stuff inside. He heard that show, and he writes back. This is uh, Gordon. Hello. In case you're wondering, I am still growing indoor citrus in Montreal. And he sent some pictures. This is a navel orange living in my living room under grow lights. It spent the summer outside. As you said, our outdoor season here is mid to late May until mid-October. Then everything must come inside. Also, I include a picture of a not quite ripe passion fruit that fell off my plants also under grow lights. That's actually pa passion. Pictures. Those are very cool pictures. And we always appreciate these kinds of things because they remind us that anything is possible. Uh, one of the things about... One of the things about, honestly, if I lived anywhere like Montreal, I can tell you my living room would have at least one Meyer lemon, probably a kumquat, probably an oleander bush just for the flowers, just as a reminder of California. The thing about passion fruit, I don't know which passion fruit you're growing, but it's important to look them up and uh, uh, figure out how the fruit ripens. And so if it's your first one or the first time you've grown this in our area, for that matter, where they can grow outside just fine, some of them, you can eat them when they still look firm mostly they're still rather astringent and tart and they have to ripen to the point of looking like they're sort of spoiling and a great reference on that in my opinion is as usual monterey bay nursery's website montereybaynsy.com he has descriptions of the better known varieties nancy garrison frederick there's a couple new ones on the market and you just have to look up and his comments about what they look like when they're ripe because some of them actually have to go beyond what you would consider the appropriate appearance. So keep that in mind. And so you often end up picking them, letting them sit on your counter for a little bit. And if you don't want to grow passion fruit yourself, but you like that lily koi that you get over in Hawaii, <laughs> I want to tell one. you that, that <laughs> we like that stuff. We buy it and have them ship it to us. <laughs> so oh it's called Auntie Lily Koi and AuntieLilyKoi.com. And, and you can get the finished product, or you can get what we do. We get the lily koi juice, already juiced, and then we make our own stuff out of it. Oh, so no, stop shaking your head. It's locally, cool. locally in USDA Zone 9, Sunset Zones 8, 9, and 14, you can grow Passiflora edulis outdoors as a plant in your garden. 
it is on the edge of hardiness here. There's lots and lots of members of the genus Passiflora, passion flowers and passion fruit. And many of them are perfectly hardy here, even though we get down to the mid twenties, they may get nipped a little by frost, their growing points are killed back. That's actually kind of advantageous, honestly, because it con contains them. Having grown up in a frost-free zone, I can tell you that Passiflora vines can become um, I don't want to use the term invasive because they're not technically invasive running out into the wildlands, but they can certainly become garden thugs, to put it mildly. And the, the edulis in our climate freezes back pretty consistently, but it recovers pretty consistently. Only the worst of the major freezes we've had here over the years has taken them all the way to the ground. Most commonly, they just defoliate. So it's in that weird category of plant that's listed as evergreen, but we have to tell you it's going to be more... I won't call it deciduous because it's not a proper leaf abscission and drop, but the leaves get toasted, but they come back and they flower and they do fruit here. I know plenty of people growing passion fruit here in the Sacramento Valley, USDA zone nine, and of course in the coastal areas. The ornamental passifloras, there are plenty of perfectly hardy species and cultivars, some of which are extremely vigorous, others of which are very well-mannered. So it's important when you cite one on your property, not to make a horrible vine mistake, but plant either a well-mannered one, or if it's a very vigorous one, have it constrained somehow. They are spectacular. They're amazing vine. They give very quick cover, great way to get privacy during the summertime. Winter appearance can be rough, but the flowers are definitely worth it. And many species and varieties are very attractive to the Gulf Fritillary butterfly, which now has a well-established population in the Davis area because of people planting Passiflora vines, uh, but not all of them. Uh, some plants draw them like crazy. Some of them they oviposit, but don't appear to feed. So I'm not sure what's going on there. Others, they oviposit and you get loads of caterpillars, which is great, except of course, they're eating the foliage of your vine. So people who are growing them for the Gulf Fritillary Caterpillars and butterflies often find the appearance of the vine itself can be a little rough if they happen to get one of the varieties or species that's attractive to them. And it, you know, I'm trying to keep a list on my computer of reports I've gotten from people about ones that did and didn't work in terms of attracting the butterfly. Passiflora edulis, full circle here, back to the original topic, passion fruit, is said to be one they feed on. So be aware that if you plant this for the fruit, it has very attractive, shiny leaves, very pretty flowers. The flowers of Passiflora's are amazing, even the ones that are just grown for the fruit primarily. But you may get these caterpillars on there that will eat a lot of the foliage. And some people think that's great, and some people get a little disconcerted by it. So good larval food source. Also, we can grow the fruiting kind here. You don't have to order this from Hawaii, Lois. Actually, I do. <laughs> you don't have room for one of these? <laughs> I planted, I planted a, a passion fruit vine. Mm -hmm. thinking it was lily koi it was not no they're different i don't know what it is but it has it takes over every single bush and tree it gets this twisty little <laughs> on. and even if i had planted it in a barrel which i did not i i admit i <laughs> i made a mistake but even if I had planted it in a barrel, that stuff will run all over the place. And when it hits the ground, oh boy, there's new roots. This yep. is not, yeah. This and they're is, not, don't do they're, they're not all that way. There's a lot of, there's a plant breeder who worked for Suncrest Nurseries for several years, Patrick Worley, who bred a number of Passiflora hybrids. And there's been others on the market and you need to look them up and figure out what you're getting into because they can become one of those problem vines in the wrong place. 
your living room, it's a great place, by the way, under light. I think that's an excellent way to grow them because the foliage is very attractive. It must be a very interesting tropical appearance in a living room in Montreal with orange trees and passion fruits. I think that's very cool. Thank you very much. He also had a question for us. Well, he sent us second email. So uh, let me read this one. Hello, someone gave me these three citrus plants to try and salvage them. They are in various stages of defoliation, but the stems are green and they're trying to flower and fruit, maybe as a last resort. Can they be saved? And what would I have to do to get them through a Montreal winter? They are all indoors all winter and are only getting lighting from artificial plant lights. And the pictures he sent, thank you for very good pictures. Um, there's one has some flower buds on it, but the stems are, half the stems are brown at the end and has died back. So what would you do about that one with the flower buds, Don? Well, the green, the, the green stems indicate there is at least hope for these plants. As I like to say, where there's protoplasm, there is hope. And where there are green stems, there is protoplasm. Um, they don't have any leaves. That's a bad start because this is an evergreen plant that shouldn't have dropped all its leaves. Putting it under the brightest light you have to try to get some of those growth buds to break on those green stems would be the first thing. You know, they, the light should be right over it. I don't know what kind of indoor lights you're using, but it should be within you know, a foot or two of this plant for some portion of the day to try and increase the light intensity. One of the pictures, it has some new growth coming. So it sounds like, looks like it's recovering from whatever happened to it. Anything that's that's tan or brown, you can just snap off. That's what I usually do is I just go and I, I grasp it and I bend. And if it snaps, then that part is dead. Or you snip it off if that's visible. But for the most part, what I see is mostly green, viable wood, that just needs somehow to get those growth buds to grow. Yes, the fact, fact that they're flowering and trying to fruit is a sign of desperation. <laughs> that is something a lot of plants do when they're dying, unfortunately. So it's not necessarily a good, good sign, but it's not harmful to the plant. If it does set fruit, I'm almost sure it'll fall off because it wouldn't be able to support the development of that fruit. And if it does set fruit at this age and it doesn't fall off, if it were mine, I would pinch that fruit off. I don't think I would fertilize these until you have some actual new growth occurring. One of them looks like it does, the others don't. And you just use a very li gentle liquid houseplant type food, nothing special needed. They just basically need some nitrogen to sustain the new growth once it begins. But bright light to get the new growth going, a little bit of light houseplant fertilizer to sustain it once it gets going. That's it for now. It's December. So you'll be you know, nurturing these along until, what did he say, May? Um, and the more light, the better to the extent that you can provide it at this time of year. Couple of questions. One is you said brown or tan should be removed, but I'm not sure that's accurate because the green stems are new. Don't the, don't the stems turn brown or tan when they get uh, more than a year old? Well, I'm just going from the picture. It looks to me like on one of these, there's a, a stem that's entirely brown with no leaves or buds on it. So what I do whenever I'm trying to determine whether a plant is alive, use the thumbnail test and then the snap it test. The thumbnail test is easy. You scratch the bark with your thumbnail. People seem to be horrified when they watch me start to do this as though it's going to harm the plant. No, you're not hurting the plant. And if it's green under where you scratch it, that part is alive. If it's tan under where you scratch it, that part is dead. Another simple technique is to go to the end of a branch that appears dead and just start bending it at the tip. And if it bends, it's alive. If it snaps, that part is dead. So you work your way down 
from the time that it stops snapping and starts bending. This isn't that crucial. We're just looking at some plants that, that have several points that could grow, and we need to try and encourage them to grow. When I don't know for sure whether a plant has died back, I just wait and see, honestly. I, I change the conditions to what's optimal, in this case, the brightest light possible. Um, and I just wait. And when it does start to grow, it's telling me where to prune to. If a bud breaks and starts to grow a foot down on one of those branches, even if it's kind of a limber branch, I'll cut to that bud because I, I'm going to put my uh, put my chips on that one now and, put, put, and figure that's what I want to encourage. So that's really what you're after here is brightest conditions to try and get more growth going right now. Don't worry about flowers. Don't worry about fruit. It can't sustain them until it has more foliage. So I'm what I would translate what you said into is uh, strip off the flowers and the fruit if you find any. Uh, don't worry about it. And me. then, then um, it's okay to leave it in the soil that it's in. But yeah. you know, he got these. He was given these. He doesn't know what that soil is like. He doesn't know what the problem was. Yeah, this is worthwhile to repot the plant. I probably would, but transplanting is a stress. You know, so I would, I, one of the first things I do when someone brings a plant in to me, cause they're concerned about it is I'll just dump it out right on the counter there at the shop and we'll look at the roots together. And again, people are terrified when they see me do this as if I'm, oh my God, you can't do that. The poor little fragile roots. Well, if they're that fragile, then there's, there's a problem. But the reality is that I want to look at the roots and see if there's any, like run my thumb along a root and see if the, the bark slips right off, which would indicate root rot see if any of the roots are withered because of sudden drought in a container that's a very common thing and so they're having they've died back and are having to regrow i want to see if there's any sulfur odor because that would indicate some rot going on in there the sulfur is a you know, that smell of, of you know slightly fetid swamp-like smell and if there's a, a soil mix that has a lot of compost in it and the root system isn't developing well is struggling yes i will move them into a new soil Faster draining, typically, usually one of my fancier soils that I sell at my garden shop, uh, because I want to try and get the new grow, new roots going. This makes people nervous. So transplanting a stressed plant can often stress it more. It also can save it. I mean, I've taken plants home from my store that were beyond anything that was ever saleable, and I've taken them out of the pots, and I've cut the roots back, and I've looked at them, and I've pulled off the ones that are in bad shape, repotted them, and, and saved them. Uh, but Partly, I, you know, that may be because I know what I'm looking at. And I know if a lot of people took the roots out, they would, they would not really be comfortable tugging away what look like maybe injured parts. You can gently pull. And if something is begun to rot, it will detach. And that's good. Uh, but if you're worried about that, maybe right now, you know, for, for today, put it closer to the light or move one of the lights right over them. And I think that would be the first thing I would do. So if, I, if, this, if somebody handed me these plants... Yep. And there's no leaves on them. There's, you know, there's nothing. So I would, the first thing I would do is cut off the dead wood. And then I would look at the structure. Yeah. And on some of these plants, I would probably remove a couple of healthy things because they're going the wrong way and they're going to get in the way. And when they don't have any leaves, seems to me to be a good time to do a little bit of pruning. Sure, it could be. The only... The only issue I have with that advice is that you're removing possible growing points on a plant that needs as many growing points as possible because you don't know which ones are going to grow. I don't have any problem with what you're suggesting. It probably isn't what I would do right at this point, but at some point I would certainly prune it for structure. Yeah. Yeah. It just seemed to me that rather than doing it twice, yeah. I mean, if it's going to live, it's going to live. If it's not going <laughs> to live, I won't have heard it. The price, um, the price was right, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, 
And then the, then the other thing is that even though it's going into December, uh, this is a perennial, an evergreen plant in yep. its normal life. It, it's not something that is normally deciduous, is it? Correct. That's correct. There are there are deciduous citrus, but they're few and far between. It's an interesting group. Uh, I'm going to take a brief detour here. <laughs> okay. Somebody Somebody posted a uh, backyard fruit orchard or some one of those Facebook groups that I'm in. I'm going to I'm going to start scaling back on some of this, but they posted a orange that they'd seen that will grow in USDA zone seven. I think they said, huh, that's interesting. It was on a website. I love these folks. so I'm going to go ahead and call them out on this one. Fastgrowingtrees.com. It's amazing how many people find that website. Fastgrowingtrees.com. They're selling this as a hardy orange tree. Well, that's true. It's trifoliate orange. All you citrus growers out there rolling your eyes, they're selling rootstock. They're selling rootstock of the Ponsiris as a quote, hardy orange. And it is a sour orange, important distinction there. And it is something that will grow into zone seven. I wouldn't be surprised if the Ponsiris trifoliata the, the flying dragon rootstock that four winds growers popularized for their dwarf citrus. I wouldn't be surprised if that's hardy even down to zone, USDA zone six. It's an incredibly hardy deciduous citrus. Interesting, huh? Deciduous member of the citrus family. Sometimes taxonomists have put it in the genus citrus, sometimes in the genus Ponsiris. But I'm gonna tell you something. I have eight or 10 of these on my property that I allowed to grow when the top of something died. And they're beautiful. They're fascinating. They're thorny as can be. Trifoliate means they have a three-part leaf. For those of you that have citrus with a three-part leaf, this is what you've got. Some of them are deciduous. Some of them are not. For the most part, they are deciduous. And the fruit is not just sour, but bitter. I don't consider it edible really in any way whatsoever. It promptly someone chimed in and said, you can make marmalade from it. Well, yeah, you can make marmalade from anything, okay? <laughs> you can make marmalade from, if you want to make real marmalade, you go get a Seville orange, which is the classic sour orange from Seville, and you make your marmalade out of that. My grandfather grew a Seville orange at his house in Pasadena solely for the purpose of marmalade. He ate marmalade every day and was a marmalade lover, and he knew full well that the only proper marmalade in the world was made with Seville oranges. It is true that you can make it from other types of citrus. A kumquat marmalade is an amazing condiment, but I wouldn't make marmalade out of sour orange, Ponsiris, trifoliate, rootstock oranges, unless I were desperate. And if I lived in zone six or seven, I don't think I'd be trying to grow citrus for food. I might grow this plant because it's cool, interesting, thorny, has a fascinating structure and really an interesting plant. And the fruit is a nice, attractive bonus. Uh, but even on my property, even the tree squirrels won't eat it. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> yes. So it's not just sour, but bitter. And we've talked before about how citrus has these bitter compounds in them, like grapefruits. Almost anybody, when I give that example, oh yeah, grapefruits are kind of bitter, but you know, a lot of us are okay with that. Many people aren't. This takes that to another level. So I would suggest that, um, read carefully. Fortunately, enough of us jumped in that this person canceled his purchase. So he did not plant this, put three or four years into it, harvest some fruit and find that he actually had an inedible, quote, hardy orange tree. I don't think there's any citrus, in my opinion, that are going to easily grow outdoors outside of USDA zones nine or 10, other than yuzu and sudachi. So those of you listening in... Uh, yuzu is very uh, trendy in gourmet food sects, um, uh, 
parts of the world, what do you call them? Foodies. Foodies really like yuzu. People who read food blogs and write about it. It's, it's bitter. It's got a very distinct, extremely aromatic peel. And it's uh, hearty down to 15 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can judge your climate as to whether that's going to work for you. It's also very thorny. It's grown in Japan and Korea because other citrus don't get enough heat to fruit there. And this one gives the wonderful aroma and the juice, although very sour, is very interesting flavored. And so it's rather trendy and, and actually very easy to grow. Sudachi is like a lime, uh, and uh, but hardy, very hardy. They grow that one also in Japan and Korea. It can go down to 15 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. I have one, it's got a wonderfully aromatic fruit, some bitterness, but nowhere near these what these others are. So if you're out of the range, and then the third would be kumquats, which can be grown all the way up into Oregon. They're mo mostly grown as ornamentals, but they can be grown in a much colder climate. Satsuma mandarins are the next hardiest citrus down to 20 to 21 degrees without much difficulty, although the fruit might be injured at that temperature. They can be grown outside of the typical temperature range where they need the heat in the summer to get good flavor. So you've got a narrower range of places that a Satsuma mandarin is going to be suitable. But if I were list listing them by hardiness, I would do yuzu, sudachi, kumquats, and then Satsuma mandarins. Other mandarins are more tender, somewhat. All the other citrus are more tender, and some are quite a bit more tender. Lemons and limes and citrons and etrogs and, and Buddha's hand and all those are, are, are hardy to about 30 degrees, even get injured here. But the rest of them are hardy enough to grow in USDA zone 9 with no problem. Those others I mentioned are for USDA zone 7, maybe 6. If you're growing a citrus in zone 6, send us a note. We'd love to hear about it, assuming you're not bringing it in for seven months of the year as Gordon is doing in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, you can grow citrus anywhere, don't yeah, you? Yep. Inside. Okay, we have so many more questions down there. Move along here. Kevin says, um, hi, Don and Lois. Last year, my daughters and I visited the Arboretum for our first time and fell in love with the fall color. Mm -hmm. And aside to our listeners, yes, we do have fall color. <laughs> yes. it's just finishing up now because yeah. the uh, the last windstorm took off many leaves, but there's still fall color here in yeah. December. It's been a long year for it too. Interestingly, yeah. it started early. Yeah, very interesting year. Okay, and continuing with uh, Kevin's message, we returned again recently because we loved it so much last time, and it probably is going to become an annual tradition now. My daughters really want me to grow a form. Formosan flame tree, that's Culrateria elegans, but I cannot find it available for purchase anywhere, just like Don told me last year when I asked you guys about it. Yeah. Um, versus, you ask about it versus the ginkgo tree. Yeah. We ended up purchasing a ginkgo tree in the spring and it is in a good spot in my yard, but I have another spot I would love to grow and plant a Formosan flame tree. Well, while we were at the Arboretum, we collected seed pods from that tree, and we want to try and propagate one since it, I cannot purchase one. Can you tell me now if it will be possible to grow one of these trees myself from seed? If so, then what would be the correct steps to get me going? Thanks, guys. I love listening to your show and look forward to hearing it when hearing what you have to say about this. And he sent a picture of yeah, seed pods. Colrotaria elegans, the Formosan flame tree, is not the Colrotaria most people are thinking of. I had someone come into my nursery looking for Colrotaria, and it turned out she was looking for golden rain tree, Colrotaria paniculata. I don't stock that, I don't sell it, and I don't recommend it uh, because it reseeds prolifically. 
It's very high germination rate on the seeds, and it hosts a particular nuisance pest, the box elder bug, red-shouldered bug, uh, two different insects that both seem to like it. And you can get, it's one of those nuisance pests where you get millions of them. I mean, I remember I was in a yard that had three or four Colbertaria paniculata. The ground was heaving with these things. As we look down, we realize that every square inch had these things crawling on it. That's paniculata. That's the one most nurseries are going to sell you if you walk in and ask for a colruteria. We also have in the Davis area, colruteria bipinata, which is pretty, has a bipinnate leaf, double, double divided. So it's a little more tropical looking, but not very showy pods. And the pods are what people really like on these. The flowers are pretty. The flowers are these wands of yellow blooms. And in the case of paniculata, that's way back in the summer, in the case of elegans, which is the third species, the one that's in question here, they bloom in October. They set pods right away, and by November, the pods are turning bright red to orange, mostly hot pink to red. Very, very showy seed pods. And that's actually one of the main ornamental values of this tree. Uh, we've grown them from seed at our nursery because we cannot get them from anybody. I got my, my plant originally from the UC Davis Arboretum plant sale. They've had them intermittently over the years. I got one well-established on my property, and I'm aware of several around the Davis area where I'm allowed to gather seeds if somebody, you know, if, if I go up and knock on the door. But my own is now producing seeds, so I don't have to do that anymore. And yes, I suppose if you're at the Arboretum and you pick up a few pods, you know, technically they're probably, you're probably breaking their rules, but, you know, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're... I, will give you, I will give everyone listening in Davis permission to go to the Quaker Meeting House, the corner of 4th and L, yep. and without harming anything, right. feel free to have a few seed pods. They're very visible. They're very obvious. The issue with the Colrotary elegans that we have found when we gather seed and start them is they have a very low percentage germination. That's why this species doesn't reseed all over the place here. They flower so late and the pods develop so late that before the plant goes deciduous and we get into very cold weather, a whole lot of the seed doesn't really have a chance to mature and ripen properly. So we have found we get anywhere from as little as 3% germination to as much as 10 to 15% germination. But if you got plenty of seeds, that's fine. And we have found there isn't anything particularly special or difficult about planting them. Whenever you're planting a woody plant, shrub or tree, you might want to look online and see if it has any special requirements with respect to chilling the seed or breaking up the seed coat by filing it or soaking it or anything. And we have found the one thing we do that seems to enhance germination is we soak the seed overnight before we plant it. We just put it in a bowl of water and we plant them the next day. So apparently they have a fairly hard seed coat. Once they're sprouted, they're very easy to grow. And I'm about to go out and gather some during this month of December to grow seeds to sell the trees at my nursery about 18 months from now. So that's about the lead time in terms of getting it to retail quality in a, in a 10 or a 15 gallon container. But they plant out great from one gallon. They plant out great as young seedlings. Just bear this thing in mind. I had to plant three, uh, four of them on my property before one got through the winter. So we're at the very edge of where this tree is hardy. In some climates, I'm told, it is actually invasive, like Florida, for example, where in milder parts of Florida, my guess is in Southern California, if it had adequate moisture, the seedlings would be a problem as well. But here, they don't get that far. The only place I see seedlings of this species is a couple here and there underneath the main parent tree. And if they're out in the open, the young seedlings are frost tender. So that would be the one issue is plant them in the spring. That's been better for us than fall planting because the young seedlings are vulnerable to cold. If you had a greenhouse, of course you could do them in the greenhouse, but just planting them outside 
Um, in pots, fast draining soil, you can either do a couple seeds in a one gallon. What we do is we start them in a, a seedling flat. And then as soon as they sprout, we transplant them out into four inch pots and then into one gallon from that. It's not that difficult to do, but the more seed you gather, the better, because there's a, just a pretty low germination percentage on this particular species, at least in Northern California. When you're saying the germination rate is so low, do you literally mean from seed to the to the sprouting, or do you mean yeah, they just from don't seed sprout? To a big tree, they just they don't just sprout. Don't, just don't sprout. Significant percentage didn't ripen in time, and it probably varies from year to year. So I just gather lots of seed. We start lots of seed to get a pretty good number of seedlings. So you know, I should have a tree available for sale for you sometime in twenty twenty four. It takes a while to get up to size. The arboretum has sold them intermittently. It's a beautiful tree. It's called Formosan Flame Tree. Great high canopy of foliage, and these the pods they have at this time of year are quite spectacular. And you can see that at the corner of Fourth Nell around the Quaker Meeting House. And at, as you enter the Arboretum down by the, the um, Oak Grove, down by the uh, Carolee Shields White Garden, that's the one to look for on a map, off towards the Puda Creek, you'll find several of them there. Beautiful established plants, 25 plus years old. All right, our next uh, writing comes to us from Ashdale and mm -hmm. says, I have a bit of a brain teaser. I have a bed that I would like to put in a dwarf under six feet, blue evergreen that would hold its blue color through the year in what is during the growing season, an Eastern aspect. The plant would get direct sunlight from sunrise until 1300 or 1400, that's one or two, uh, and then would be shaded by, to the West by what is a screen of Pittosporum, Quercus lobata and Sequoia sempervirens that my neighbor has created. The tricky part is that the tricky part is that while the evergreen would receive unfettered access to all that glorious light now, it will mature into an increasingly shaded aspect. Right. Its access to bright direct sun would decrease as the Legostromia indica natchez to its north grows bigger and taller and a hedgerows of camellias behind it that I'm training into small trees also get larger. Are there evergreen plants with blue foliage that stay yes. under six feet that would hold their foliar color in the part sun, full sun of what is essentially the edge of a forest? There are. Um, the original question that he sent me either with this email or before was about spruces uh, because there's some very vivid blue colored blue needled spruces and they um i don't like to sell the spruces a lot here in the valley because they need a lot of water the most successful blue spruces i've seen are typically in lawns in our gated communities you know the places where the lawns are being watered a lot uh, they're like coast redwood in that regard they're not particularly drought tolerant and they would of course ultimately outgrow that spot and spruces uh, with their very tight pyramidal growth habit what happens if they're in too much shade is they get, they stretch, they don't have an attractive appearance, they brown out on the lower part, and eventually you just have this strange thing up higher uh, where it isn't really an aesthetic part of your landscape. There are conifers that are easier to shape. That's the main thing. You know, the spruce, it would be hard to prune it effectively and keep it in that spot. There are junipers. I know everybody has, you know, sort of forgets about how many varieties of junipers there are. And the drab green ones are the reason everybody hates the genus because they seem around gas stations and things like that. There are some very attractive junipers that will do what you're after. There are some of them that prefer light shade. 
there's one, for example, called the shore juniper, Juniperus conferta. There's another called the Japanese garden juniper, which is more of a blue-green color than gray. But those can both, well, they're both ground cover types, are very commonly staked up to a particular height. In other words, you just take one of the prostrate branches, put a three to four foot stake in the ground, tie it securely to that as it grows until it reaches whatever height you're after. And then it grows over the top and mounds back down to the ground and makes a very, very effective garden landscape focal point that of course is there year round because they're evergreen. So that would be the Japanese garden juniper or the shore juniper in particular that are often grown as garden features being trained as a miniature tree, basically. You typically leave the lower branches so it ends up as a sort of miniature cascading tree-like thing. There are other junipers that are very strongly upright that are silver blue. Wichita blue. Um, there's several. If you get in, out at your Western Garden book, they actually sort them by growth habit. So that was one of the most useful things in the Sunset Western Garden book was the junipers weren't sorted by species. They're sorted by how they grow. Ground cover, shrub, bigger shrub, strongly upright. There are some that are narrow columns like Italian cypresses. There's a whole lot that have that gumdrop classic Christmas tree shape. And there's some that very, very well take two shaping. You could you could do some training and shaping like a sort of a um, bonsai effect in your landscape and still have them look good. And they're moderately tolerant of shade. If you're in a rainier climate than we are, which I know he is, he's over in Santa Rosa where they get more rain than Davis does, you could look at some of the other conifers and nurseries over there are likelier to have them than nurseries in the valley. Those of you listening in Oregon or places where it rains through the summer, any garden center you go into probably has a whole section of conifers. I would be fascinated by them if I lived in one of those areas. Here in the valley, it's so hot and we get so dusty that they tend to look drab and get spider webs on them and stuff in the summer. So they don't sell as well in the interior areas of California, but in the rainier parts, and I would include the Napa Sonoma region, which is where he's writing to us from, they get 30 inches of rain, we get 20 or less, you know, we get 18. So they tend to be more moderate in all those regards. And some of the other conifers you could look at in particular, would be the Camma Cypress, Camma Cypress, false Cypress group, in particular, Camma Cypress Lawsoniana. And there are some silver ones in that group that have very rounded growth habit that you can work with. They have some that are more informal. It's a very large group of attractive conifers. So I would broaden beyond the spruce and the, the what you might call the bigger tree category and look at some of these very interesting conifers. Most of them, when people ask me about them and they want to order them here, I recommend them for light shade. They don't want full afternoon sun. So it would probably be ideal if you could find a good cryptomeria, a good cypress, or one of these junipers that appeals to you. Plan on doing a little training, shaping, pruning as it, when it's young to open it up, get a more interesting, maybe irregular growth habit and have it be a real focal point. Now I happen to know this young gentleman's age and he might move away from this house at some point and it would be there in the care of his parents, which is um, marginal. That's okay. It'll just grow out of whatever you shape it to into whatever space is available to it. And this is really important for someone who's going into design as uh, he and others of our listeners are, are doing. You have to evaluate its airspace. I mean, when I'm looking on my property, at a spot to plant a tree, I'm visualizing you know, a 30 by 30 foot or a 40 by 40 foot tree and trying to make sure I'm giving it enough room. It will grow up into the space with those other plants you described as long as you do 
say over the next three to five years, very careful selective pruning. So it becomes part of the canopy rather than being dominated by that canopy. So you have to do a little pruning to get more light to it, but that's not difficult. Uh, crepe myrtle can be pruned up. If it's hanging over this conifer, you can prune it back a little bit and you can do it aesthetically and with regard to the safety or the ultimate structure of that tree, you don't have to harm it to make it make some room for another plant that's nearby. So with some training, with some pruning, with some careful selection of something that's more like a large shrub than a tree, I think you could find a conifer within those other groups that might meet your criteria. And some of them have really cool foliage. I honestly, if I were, if I had a nursery in Portland, big section of that nursery would be full of these interesting conifers. They just aren't that big a deal in the Sacramento Valley. But I think in wine country where he's writing to us from, they would do quite well. I want to talk about the easiest plants to grow in the whole world, which are bulbs. And isn't a dahlia a bulb? It's a geophyte. We call it a bulb. We use the term bulb to refer to rhizomes, stolons, corms, tubers, tuberous roots, and actual bulbs, because uh, we grow them all the same way. So we, we use the term generically, even though a true bulb is like an onion or a lily, it has the, the visible layers that make a bulb distinctive from those other root storage organs is the best way to put it. Geophyte is the official term. And if you go to redwoodbarn.com, you'll find articles about bulbs where I, one of them is called a fondness for geophytes, because geophyte <laughs> is what we call the whole category, but we'll call them bulbs just to keep it simple. And yeah, so it's a- Don has been writing for the Davis Enterprise for a long time. Even before we started this show, he was writing for them. And I have in front of me an article written in 2004 <laughs> and it's titled Bulbs. But you know, it's still pertinent because bulbs have been around a long time. They're going to be around an even longer time. And although you might have some improvements and changes in color and stuff like that, generally it's pretty much the same. So I'm going to read this first paragraph. Bulbs have got to be the easiest things we plant in the garden with the highest bloom to effort ratio. <laughs> Dig a hole, stick them in, cover them with soil and water. The rains come along, do the rest. A few weeks later, up they come growing and blooming without any more work from you. Yeah, and some bulbs do that for years after you plant them. Yeah. I have bulbs on this property I first planted in the mid-1980s that still come up and bloom, and some of which have increased dramatically. Now, what grows best is going to depend on where you're listening. We're in a mild climate. We're in USDA zone 9, sunset zones 8, 9, 14 in this area. So we can grow an amazing range of bulbs. These are the plants that we plant in the fall for bloom in the spring. And there's a whole other category of bulb-like plants, mostly corms and other types of geophytes that we plant in the spring for summer bloom. So we can grow a lot of things that are from South Africa, uh, for example, uh, which, which can't be grown in colder climates. But we also are cold enough in the winter here in the Sacramento Valley, and in, I would say the Bay Area as well in most cases, to grow the more traditional bulbs that are fall planted for springtime bloom. Some are you get a lot for your money. A daffodil is a good example. Anything related to a daffodil, all the narcissus, which is the genus of all of the daffodils and the smaller flowered paper whites and a whole lot of the species that are in that same group. You can plant a bulb and 10 years later, you'll have 10 plants in that spot blooming. They, they will increase and multiply. Others, the well-known, you know, America's favorite bulb is probably the tulip. They'll grow and bloom the first year you plant them. In this climate, they will typically bloom a second year, although you won't get as many blooming. And for the most part, that's about it for most tulips. However, 
if you happen to come into my nursery, we just received our tulips. We wait until now to get them in actually, because we don't think they should go into warm soil. And I have gradually been shifting over my inventory to more and more of the botanical or species tulips, which multiply quite freely here in the Sacramento Valley and in Southern California, the clusianas and the uh, chrysanthas and these little miniature tulips that bloom about eight to 10 inches tall, which increase. Uh, they do quite well. I've seen established stands that have, were planted years ago, which are increasing and multiplying. So there are tulips that can be grown here, but they're not the big long stem giant Dutch hybrid tulips you're thinking of. We can grow those. We can grow them just fine, but don't count on them coming back year after year. So most bulbs will increase and multiply in our part of California and in many other parts of California. There's a couple exceptions and tulips are probably the best known. Hyacinths typically repeat, but don't increase. Crocus, likewise, mostly the big flower, giant flowered crocus will repeat, but not increase. But again, there are species tulips, species crocus that will increase in this area. So there's a, an, it's an amazingly diverse group of plants. Mostly, this is the important thing to know, it's not an adaptation to cold. It's typically not that, that uh, uh, tulips don't need, uh, these bulbs don't need winter chilling. It's not that we don't have the winter conditions they need. It's an adaptation to drought. Most bulbs are considered to have developed as a way of getting through a long period without rainfall till the next cycle. And so they're perfectly adapted to California. And this is even more important. They're perfectly adapted to low water landscapes. The, almost every bulb you can think of does its life cycle in the rainy season and goes dormant and is just underground waiting when we're out of the rainy season. So they are done, daffodils are done by April. And then the foliage grows out, you let it grow and recharge the bulbs for future years. It dies down by May, you don't even know where they are. They're still in there somewhere. I hit them all the time when I'm planting things. And uh, next October, November, depending on the bulb, depending on the year, they may start to push up. And with the rainy season, they start their life cycle again. So they're ideal perennial flowers. It's another point. They're not usually included in discussions of perennial flowers, but they are, that will increase and will tolerate drought and are very adapted to a wide range of gardening conditions. And they are one of the easiest things to plant. So it's kind of a mystery to the nursery industry why bulb sales have dropped and dropped and dropped over the years. People don't come in in the fall to buy bulbs nearly to the extent they used to. We all still sell them for the most part. I do know nurseries that have just given up trying to sell bulbs in the fall because they end up with 20, 30% of them left over. That's more than their profit margin. And so they don't really know what to do about them. Many of us have simply adopted the practice. We're already doing it. Pot a whole lot of them up when they come in because we do have lots of people now that buy flower bulb plants in bloom or coming into bloom. That's absolutely fine with me, but boy, you can sure save a lot of money if you can find a vendor that has a good selection of flower bulbs. It's one of the simplest projects you can do with a kid. There's no real rules except to know which way is up, okay? <laughs> There's no real important steps. You don't have to do all this stuff that you read about. They don't specifically need a particular fertilizer. Bone meal is not necessary or particularly even beneficial to flower bulbs, despite what your great grandmother told you. Uh, they, they don't really require any special attention except knowing which depth to plant them. So the most common question we get about bulbs is when to plant them. And they vary, but mostly we start as early as October. I don't like to bring in the ones that really prefer cooler soil until November. So November and December into January is bulb planting season in the Sacramento Valley. Many retailers bring them in much earlier than that, August to September at the big you know, discount type retailers. If you buy them then, the soil's warm, 
it's not a great time to put them in, but I suppose you could, or you can just hold them. You know, if you bought them in late summer, early fall, you can store them in your garage until the appropriate planting time. That's another thing that makes them so easy. You can buy them. You don't have to rush home and put them in the ground like those broccoli plants that you just purchased. You can wait. You can do this next weekend or the weekend after. And all through December and into January is very suitable for planting them. They're also absolutely ideal for containers. It's a great plant to grow in pots. Uh, you can just, just look for perhaps some of the shorter types. One thing that's happened is I've been doing my bulb orders over the years. I've looked back at some of my old records. I've been gradually selecting for shorter and shorter bloom stem length. And part of that is simply that they work better in containers. And so like many retailers, I'm potting them up. If it's an 18 inch tall tulip, that's going to be pretty tall and floppy. So I look for the 14 inch ones instead. Uh, and I would urge you as you're doing them for containers to take that into consideration as well. Uh, sturdier, shorter plants are going to give a better effect in a container perhaps than a taller one. But uh, you, can, you can plant them um, anytime between September and early January. The second question we get has to do with refrigerating the bulbs for several weeks before planting. That's not necessary. It's not necessary. I prefer that you wait until the soil is warmer, uh, excuse me, soil is colder, cooler to plant them so you don't confuse your tulip bulb. The reason for refrigerating them was for uniform bloom. So if you are doing tulip mania, I know someone who went, left my business and went over to the Bay Area and helped manage the Tulip Mania Festival, Pier 39 in San Francisco, uh, planting thousands of tulip bulbs every year. Yes, they would chill them for four to six weeks so that they could plant them all at the same time and they'd all bloom together. Okay, that's the purpose of chilling is to make a uniform bloom period. If you just plant them in your garden, at different depths a little bit, because you're always going to be a little bit different depths. You're not going to be perfect. They'll bloom one and then the other one will bloom a day or so later, another one a couple days later. You won't have that perfect picture of lined up tulips like you see in the Dutch gardens because they've carefully chilled those and planted them in a particular manner, but they'll bloom just fine. So the chilling is not necessary for them to bloom and it really is kind of a hassle. Just wait till now, wait until mid-November through December into January to plant when the soil is cool, put them in, they will start to root out as the soil begins to warm up and they'll grow very quickly. So you don't really need to put them in the refrigerator. Sunset Magazine proved this for us years ago by doing side-by-side -side trials down at their Menlo Park headquarters back when they were located in Menlo Park and they chilled some didn't chill the others, planted them under the exact same conditions. The chilled ones bloomed all together. The others bloomed over a couple of weeks. They were equally big, equally long stems. They just varied a little bit as to how they bloomed. So if it matters to you that you're planning for a particular event, well, good luck because the timing can be a little dicey, but it does not require chilling. So that we need to get that out of the way because again, as with these other flowers we've talked about, all these rules have a accumulated over the years about how you're supposed to do this. We've talked about dahlias and roses, this whole checklist of rules that people pass on from one generation of gardeners to the next. You don't need to do any of that. My articles in the past have mentioned fertilizer. You can skip that if you want to. The only fertilizer they really respond to is nitrogen. Typically, that's not necessary. Um, if your bulbs are blooming less and less from year to year, it either has to do with the type of bulb they are, or they're getting crowded. You may need to dig them up and, and, and split them apart, you know, spread them out a little bit. It's not any lack of nutrients, typically. Uh, so don't, don't rush out looking for a special bulb food. Don't worry too much about that kind of thing. The key rule, if a bulb is two inches deep, two, you know, two inches tall, 
you plant it four inches to the bottom. In other words, twice their depth. There are a couple exceptions to that. Bearded irises and amaryllis are planted partly out of the ground. You should be informed of that when you buy them. The others are planted, you know, if it's a two inch tall tulip bulb, you put it at the bottom of a four inch hole. That's easy to remember. And you know what? If you go a little deeper, a little shallower, it's okay. I routinely take a shovel, dig a hole, smooth out the bottom, stick three or four bulbs together, backfill, water at once, and I'm done. That's it. It's very, very easy. I'll often stick a viola or pansy flower plant on top of it just to remember where I planted and because they look nice together. Other than that, nothing special needed once you get them in the ground. And most of them you can just leave right there. I ordered bulbs last year from a bulb company. They would not ship them to me in the fall when I wanted to plant them. They did, waited until it was appropriate in Michigan, which is where the bulb company was. And then they sent me all these bulbs and I planted them and they bloomed, but way later than expected because I yep. hadn't even bloomed the ground when it was expected. So my question to you is, will they this year, a uh, year later, will they be blooming at the same time as they did last year, or will they revert to the typical pattern uh, that their that their species has for next spring? They will be on the typical pattern. So that's a common question. People find bulbs in their refrigerator that they put in there to refrigerate in, say, October, and they're let's say it's January, and they find them there, and we get the question all the time: What do we do with them? I said, plant them. I mean, they haven't, unless they've rotted or, or, or desiccated, go ahead and plant them. They will bloom several weeks later than they would have normally bloomed. And then by next year, they'll be on whatever is their appropriate cycle for this climate. And we bloom, our bulbs bloom early here. I mean, my February gold daffodils bloom in January. Uh, you know, so they're, they're, we're ahead of whatever the label says. And this is a problem the industry has is trying to put something on the label that can be a, applicable to our listener in zone 24 and our listeners here in zone 14 and our friend in, in, um, in Montreal is going to bloom a little differently in each of those climates. I don't think your tulips are blooming in late March in Montreal. My guess is that's more of a May thing there. I don't know. I've never lived there. Um, but our experience here is that many of them come up right away. Freesias and paper whites come up right away and bloom very early. Those are too tender to grow in colder climates, actually. And I've had paper whites and their relatives blooming in October, uh, December, January, depending on the variety. Freesias typically can, in a warm setting, can bloom as early as January, more commonly February. The bulk of our daffodil season here is February to March. Our tulips are typically the month of March. And by April, most of the bulbs that are in their own cycle in the ground are pretty much done, although there are some other things that bloom later, the alliums and the scillas and so on. There are bulbs that bloom anywhere from November, December, all the way into May to June that are planted in the fall. And then there's that whole other category like the dahlias, which are not bulbs, but they're handled like bulbs, which we plant typically in the late winter and spring to bloom through the summer. And my guess is that the bulbs you ordered from that company were in that category. They considered them spring planted bulbs. Uh, we have things that we can grow outdoors here that can't be grown outdoors in those colder climates. Uh, one group that I think I should mention for anybody that just has a passing interest in bulbs and is looking for a, a great simple thing to grow, the amaryllis bulbs that you see not just at garden centers, but at every discount place right now. It is one of the easiest bulb plants to bring into flower. They've even found, I hate to say this, that if you dip, if they dip the bulb in wax, to coat the bulb itself with a, a coating of wax. Oh, hey, they can paint them and put glitter on them if they want to. <laughs> you can set this in your windowsill. It will bloom 
it's got enough energy. The flower is ready to go. It will bloom without even roots. Yeah, yeah you're kind of using up the bulb when you do that because you're having it flower without letting it grow. But it will do that. So you're seeing these in Walmart and similar types of retailers. Now, I think it's, it's kind of a terrible thing to do to the bulb because I think it'd be hard to get that bulb back in good health after you've done that. But we brought in a, a few dozen of these uh, Dutch amaryllis, and we get some from Peru, and we get some from Holland, and they're all pushing their buds now, first week of December, so a pretty good chance they'd be blooming for the holidays. And uh, it's a really easy bulb to grow indoors to get it to bloom the first time. It's not easy to get it to bloom again indoors in a container, but it's one of the easiest flowering bulbs to watch bloom. That and the paper white narcissus are ones where anybody can do it. You don't even really have to have good sunlight. They'll just kind of... The, ready they're all ready to go and if you don't happen to like the fragrance of the the paper whites one there are less fragrant varieties two try the amaryllis because they they're actually spectacularly beautiful my suggestion if you live in this area or southern california and you get an amaryllis bulb for christmas enjoy the bloom in the spring plant it out in your garden somewhere they'll get onto a normal cycle of blooming in the early summer in california and they're perfectly hardy out of doors here so this is the very, very beginning of December. Yep. And on later radio shows, we will be going through the December 2021 calendar, which Don has created with all these beautiful pictures. If you want to get a jump on this or you want to read articles, I recommend you go to redwoodbarn.com, which is Don's uh, commercial red site, and look for the calendar. So you can see, even if we haven't talked about it yet, you can see what's up. And the uh, 2022 calendars have arrived. I will be posting, as I always do, the images online so you can download them and uh, take the calendar. Those of you listening out there, uh, kids, you can actually make a calendar for anyone in your family this way. You're going to have to ask a parent if you can burn through one of their ink cartridges on your printer because I guarantee it will. But page by page, they'll be up there within a week or so. You can get some good quality, you know, print paper, higher brightness factor. You know how to look for that at the local stationery store, right? And you can print it on that. You can carefully fold over a ribbon, staple it very neatly in a row and give it to them as a gift for Christmas. And the only cost is your parents' print, print cartridge. So... <laughs> It's <laughs> my public Thank service. You, my for public that service suggestion. That's right. My public service for 12-year-olds everywhere. <laughs> You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. 